Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing the Lagan Valley area filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Let me say again, you're so welcome. If you are a guest or a visitor, uh, we're thrilled that you're here. Hope you feel at home and at ease with us. Let's uh, pray for Pete um, as he shares. Um, Father, thank you so much for Pete and Sarah. Jesus, we honor their obedience to your voice in their life. And Holy Spirit, come now. We invite you to come. Would you anoint, equip, and enable Pete to be completely himself right now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, bro. Thanks, Andy. Morning, everybody. Great to be in Lisbon. We've been uh, in Lurgan for the last couple of days. Is that right? Yeah, last couple of days. We love Lurgan and we love Lisbon. We, sorry for kind of um, arriving in a bit of a kerfuffle halfway through worship. The, um, the car we were in, the clutch went on the way here. So we were sort of rolling onto the curb of the uh, uh, roundabout on the way into Lisbon. Um, so we're under... Uh, intense spiritual attack, which is uh, a great setup for uh, a fun morning. Uh, my name's Pete. This is Sarah. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. We've heard a lot about you guys. Um, we've been uh, traveling for the last five weeks uh, throughout the, the UK. We started in Dubai, went throughout the UK. We were up in Edinburgh. We've been in London, down to Bristol and here and there. Um, and various places we've been uh, where people... Uh, no, Andy and Dana said, oh my goodness, those two are amazing, what an amazing church, you're going to lag in Valley Vineyard, oh, I'm so lucky. So we feel really blessed to be here with you guys this morning. Um, oh goodness, that looked like it's about to fall, there we go. Um, so I just wanted to spend this morning preaching out of um, a story from the Gospel of Mark, but trying to... Um, really aware that to pretty much all of you, I'm this random guy from London living in Cape Town, um, and um, so just wanted to kind of place myself a little bit um, and tell you a bit of our story along the way as well. Um, that's why I've got a slightly confusing accent, so as well, as well. Um, and um, so we, I'm Pete, this is Sarah, we live in Cape Town, we live in a community called Manenberg. Now, um, has anyone been to Cape Town here? Great, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely place to go, isn't it? Um, mountains, vineyards, wine farms, something for everyone. Um, we live in a community called Manenberg, which if you've flown into Cape Town, it's actually very close to the airport. Um, and Manenberg is a community that we adore and love, but unfortunately people are a bit mean to Manenberg. It's often referred to as a dumping ground or as a godforsaken ghetto or as a gang breeding ground. And we just choose to call it home. We've lived there for the last five years. I moved in originally ten years ago. And Sarah and I are part of leading a church there called Tree of Life. Um, and um, one of our dear friends, Claire, is also part of leading Tree of Life. Her parents, Trish and Steve McVidia, are here this morning. So we're just really happy to see you guys. Um, and we're part of leading Tree of Life. Tree of Life's a 24-7 prayer community. The first community in Africa. Whoop, whoop pulling it globally south, amen, and um, 
You have to say amen to that because it's happened, so you can't disagree with that. And um, we um, have chosen to live in Manenberg uh, based on the conviction that if Jesus lived anywhere in Cape Town today, he would live in Manenberg or somewhere like it. Do you remember what was said about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And that is generally spoken about Manenberg the whole time. If you fly into Cape Town to try and rent a car, you tell them at the rental place at the airport you're staying in Manenberg, they will strongly dissuade you not to. The reason for this being that we are living within a gang and drug pandemic. Manenberg is a community that should not exist. It was created in the 60s by the racist apartheid government who, with this theology of white supremacy... By the way, apartheid is a, the rotten legacy of apartheid in South Africa is a wonderful reminder to us that theological literacy is something we all need to be going after. Apartheid is Afrikaans for separateness. And it was, at its core, a theological project. We need to get into scriptures. We need to learn, Jesus, what are you saying? Otherwise, we'll just fall for whatever people at the front are saying. You don't do that. Um, and we, uh, so Manenberg shouldn't exist. Uh, in the 60s, uh, tens of thousands of families' homes at the foot of Table Mountain were bulldozed, their only crime being people of color. And they were forcibly removed to 20 kilometers on the outskirts of town uh, to dormitory-style accommodation built by the government. And 50 years later is this decades of a collective trauma response to forced removals, an inevitable uh, uh, desolation of families and uh, dignity. Gangs have sprung up. So just to give you a little example, we, I used to live in the hard-living gang territory, and the, the main uh, opposition to the hard-livings are the Americans gang. You've got the JFKs, which stands for the Junky Funky Kids. You've got CKs, the Clever Kids, the Ghetto Kids, the Rude Boys, the Westsiders, the F the World Kids, the Luxury Kids, DMX, which stands for Dangerous Murderers Exist. There's even a new one called the Talibans recently uh, formed. It sounds like kids pretending to be... Like, you know, it just sounds like something out of a comic or something, doesn't it? But the fact of the matter is, the gang, the gang pandemic in Cape Town has actually put Cape Town on a rather sad list. It's number nine at the moment for cities where, uh, of homicides per 100,000 people. So all of this paints a rather depressing picture. It's not particularly feel-good vibes on a Sunday morning, is it? It will get a little better, I promise. Um, but I just wanted to show... Um, you a little uh, film that I think we've loaded up uh, that gives you a little snapshot of some of the faces, some of the context, some of the alleyways and courts, and a bit of the sort of physical layout um, of Cape Town, of specifically Manenberg, and hopefully that will kind of um, G you up into some mass hysteria that will allow me to preach and get some amen. So let's just watch this for the next two minutes. Our policy is one which is called by an Afrikaans word, apartheid. What will it take to change the story? A vision from the heart of God. Growing community and restoring worth in forgotten places. We all have a journey marked out ahead. There will be both victories and tragedies. Where will yours lead and what trials will you face along the way? 
the voice of God deep within is beckoning us into adventures as yet unknown. Wholehearted lives, so costly but relentlessly hopeful. Could another world be calling a compelling new reality where walls are torn down and friendships built? Where myths are exposed and unheard voices listened to? The old order of things made new. But what of the cost? The accusation? The despair? The choruses of it can't be done? We can choose what to believe. To rise up above the pointing fingers of accusation and the shrugs of indifference. The stories we live in are the stories we live out. What if yours is a story that the world is crying out to hear? Because ultimately, there is no neutral ground. things about that video is that most of the people you watched in it are walking miracles. The young man who the, the video opened with, with the cap on, he's one of our favorite people. He's holding the fort in our home at the moment. He um, is called Waden and is recent, has recently turned two years clean from crystal meth. And he was a member of the Stupa Boys. And his mum threw him out of home when he was a little boy and he went to live with his granny. But his granny threw him out as a teenager when he started bricking in her windows and um, stealing from her. And so he ended up living in a burnt-out car, smoking crystal meth by day and mugging and shooting and stabbing by night. And um, he's the most wonderful, father-hearted, soft-natured individual you could ever meet. And the wonderful journey of our lives is... We have the privilege of saying, come and live with us. We bought a home in a, a, a little corner of Manenberg that isn't a gang turf, and we welcome young men uh, between 18 and 25 to come and live with us, based on the conviction that the gospel at its heart is a message of belonging. So we say, come and belong in a home. Come and get off Unga, which is street heroin which is basically heroin laced with rat poison, which gives you stomach ulcers, which really hurt, and the only way to take away the pain is to take more heroin. Come and get off that. Come and get uh, delivered of your withdrawal pains or your um, craving for drugs through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see the Holy Spirit break into these lives that are so empty and so hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we get to do community with young men such as that. And he came to us because he saw a young guy called Marwan who was a Muslim heroin addict, a member of the Dacha Kopa gang. And uh, he said, I want what Marwan's got. 
And Marwan came to us because he saw Dwayne, who I lived with back in 2010, when he had assured me he was off heroin, and it rapidly emerged he wasn't because half my house went missing. And um, Dwayne is now seven and a half years clean, a husband and a father. And so we begin to see this chain of discipleship affecting lives that the world has no solutions to. The tourism industry would say, do not go there. The car rental places say, Manenberg, don't you mean Musenberg? And all the while, we're saying, if the church doesn't do this, who's going to? If not us, then who? And so I want to um, bring us into the, uh, into the Bible this morning and, and, and look at the fact that sometimes people say, oh, it's a radical, that's a radical response to the gospel, isn't it? Oh, it's so radical, front line. And we say, absolutely not. No, no, this, this is the most logical, reasoned response to a gospel in which is good news, the good news of Jesus giving his life up, giving up the privilege and riches of heaven and moving towards dysfunction, pain, violence, and sin. This is the most logical and reasoned response to what the gospel based in a city which is the most segregated city in South Africa, which is the most economically unequal country on earth. There's nothing radical about what we do. It's very, very reasonable. And I want to prove to you this morning in the next um, 20 minutes or so why actually, whether we're in Lurgan or Lisbon or Manenberg or wherever else we might be, why Jesus' heart for the lost and the broken is calling the church out of familiarity and comfort and into the unknown, which conveniently was the um, theme of the whole Tabar conference, which we didn't know about. Um, We've just been at Emmanuel for the last couple of days. So, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, 1 to 20. And forgive me, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to paraphrase it. And you can discuss over lunch whether I got it right, what I left out, and which things I emphasized to make my point. Okay? So Jesus is with his disciples. They're on one side of the lake of um, the Sea of Galilee. And um, the father says to Jesus, presumably, we're not told this, but we are told elsewhere, that Jesus didn't do anything his father didn't say. He didn't go anywhere his father didn't tell him to go. Right? Great model for us. And the father presumably said to Jesus, go to the other side of the lake. So he said, sure, no problem. He hops in the boat with his disciples, and they sail to the other side of the lake, to a region called the Gerasenes. Now, on the way, I'm sure many of you know the story, a, a, a furious storm rises up, and the disciples are all freaking out and not knowing what to do. Jesus had had the forethought to bring a little travel pillow because we see that he's actually curled up um, under deck on a cushion, completely under, um, unperturbed by this storm that is rising up. And the first message I have for you today is this, that if the Father has told you to go somewhere and a storm hits, do not see that as validation for stopping what he said you to do. Jesus was on the other side of the lake and a storm rose up. Did he then say, okay, this is probably a bad, bad thing, we should head back? No, he stood up, got up there and, 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 and silenced the wind and the waves. He was able to sleep in the storm and the storms we we're able to sleep in are those that we have authority over. And so if you have chosen to step out in faith, step out in obedience to the voice of God, and some kind of storm or setback or difficulty is assailing you, then my encouragement to you today is push on, take authority over that thing and get to where he's asked you to go. And so they get there, they get to the other side of the lake. And you can imagine the disciples all slightly, um, what's the word, scraggling, sort of like, what on earth will make that 
journey worth it, popping anti-nausea pills and sort of talking about their need for retreat. And um, they hear some kind of wailing coming from the distance, and they think, oh, goodness, that must be the welcome team. Um, don't like the sound of that, though. And then emerges some giant man with eyes whirring, with chains uh, <laughs> um, falling from his um, wrists and blood dripping down his arms because he's been self-harming and running up to them. And he immediately recognizes Jesus. Who recognizes Jesus? The demonic, that's who. The needy, the poor, and the demonic often recognize Jesus before those of us in mainstream culture. And he runs up to Jesus, and Jesus asks him the most priceless question, which I could learn from a lot more. And he says, what's your name? Jesus wants to connect. And you can imagine this guy looking at him, eyes wearing, going, legion, for we are many. And Jesus' disciples like, whoa, strong flavor. Had not uh, <laughs> imagined this is what we were coming up against. And what does Jesus do? Unperturbed, he supernaturally delivers the man of demons, sends the legion of demons into a herd of pigs, and we'll get back to the pigs. But what I want you to see is that Mark is deliberately hamming up how unclean and how unfamiliar this whole thing is. The guy, where does he live? The, the, the demoniac was living in a graveyard. He was self-harming. He had blood all over him. Have a herd of pigs going on over there. Graves are associated with death, ceremonially unclean. Blood, ceremonially unclean. Pigs, ceremonially unclean. This is unfamiliar and really uncomfortable for the disciples who are following Jesus. And I heard someone say the other day, the thing about the Holy Spirit is that his name is the comforter. But if we're being comforted so effectively by the things of the world, then we have no need for the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It's actually only when we step out into the unfamiliar and the uncomfortable that the comforter really comes into his own and we go, oh, thank goodness, I really need to rely on you, Holy Spirit. So you can imagine the disciples, they're kind of looking at this whole thing going on, what on earth is this ministry we signed up for? We just thought it was a gap year scheme, follow this guy, Jesus, it all looked legit, but this is... This is going horribly wrong. And you can imagine the villagers kind of looking at this and then thinking, oh, this is, this is a de- this demoniac guy. We've not had a solution to this guy's problem for the, like the last, I don't know, 20 years. We've been living in decades of fear and not known what to do about his problems. And so what actually did they do? What had they done to try and help this demoniac, or at least to try and make life go on without people being in constant fear of their safety? They'd sent him away to the margins of society. They had incarcerated him in chains. And they had isolated him from relationship. We can sit here thinking, oh man, they didn't have much, much idea of how to, how to kind of help people, did they? Obviously weren't into compassion ministries. And actually the fact of the matter is, what do we do today with the self-harming, the mentally disturbed, the dangerous, the affected? Well, we tend to incarcerate them. We tend to put them on the margins of society. And we tend to isolate them from any deep or meaningful relationship. Same, same. We do the same thing. It happens in South Africa. Well, the guys you live with, yeah, I mean, it's, it's noble what you're trying to do. Aren't you just weighing in the ocean there? I mean, haven't you seen the statistics for gangs? And also, here's another thing. They all belong in jail anyway. What are you doing? And that's coming from people in the church. And the people that we're trying to say, no, guys, Jesus didn't see a demoniac. He didn't see someone to be marginalized or thrown out. He didn't see someone to be rejected and um, um, cursed. 
He saw an apostle. We'll get to it later on in the story, but he actually sends this guy out. What are, what are we seeing when we look at people? Do we look at people from a worldly point of view, or do we no longer do that and actually see them through the eyes of God? Anyway, so we get to the stage. The pigs have run off the cliff. This guy who's been demonized for however long, we're not sure, dripping with blood and chains hanging off his wrists, is finally sitting at the feet of Jesus, quote, fully clothed and in his right mind. Praise God. Presumably, he had been naked for decades. So fully clothed. We're all sitting here in our right minds. This is a real sign of the kingdom right here. Well done. (laughs) Step one. Just checking. Everyone is fully clothed. It's fine. (laughs) Um, naturists would disagree but that's a whole other thing and we would think the villagers would say hallelujah we've seen God move this guy that we had no idea how to help Jesus has just come and done it for us amazing I tell you what get your video camera we're going to make a testimony video and you can imagine them saying look we'll put him up up on stage he can be the evangelistic guy for the next event we're doing Right? And you can imagine Jesus thinking, oh, I'll tell you what, I could take him with me for the next town. He could be like the warm-up act and get everyone emotional, sort of set it up and I'll smack him down. We'll have, a, have an evangelistic crusade. And, um, but none of the sort. None of the sort. Have a look at verse um, 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported what had happened in the town and countryside. Okay, all fine. And the people went out to see what had happened, promising When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Ah. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Actually, This is confusing. We'd think that, you know, you can imagine the Airbnb or the guest house owners in the Gerasenes region perpetually getting one-star ratings from people, complaining about the sort of disconcerting wailing coming from the tomb area and thinking, oh, for goodness sake, tourism's shot in this region. And then you can imagine them going, oh, brilliant, that's going to go. Right, we've got the ensuite bathroom ready. We're going to have an influx of tourists now because Jesus sorted out. What's going on? But no, it's actually the opposite. They're scared and they plead with Jesus. Please leave. Why? It's all about the pigs. It's all about the pigs. Now, the pigs, this is a region where people farm pigs. They herded pigs. Pigs were financial security. Pigs were what they'd always known. Pigs were familiar. Pigs were their means of um, surviving. Pigs were their security. Pigs represented the status quo of life as it's always been for the last however long. What does Jesus do when he delivers the man from a legion of demons? Where does he send the, where does he send the demons? Into the very thing that represents all of those familiarity, security, comfort, what we've always known, status quo. Life as it's just don't rock the boat. That's what those pigs represented and Jesus threw the demons into them and they ran off a cliff. Is it any wonder then to us that the people would ask Jesus to leave on the back of the deliverance? Of course not. Here's the thing. If it came down to the the demoniac getting free, 
or the sort of staid familiarity and equilibrium and just life as it always has been of the village going on, the fear of the villagers tells us that actually they chose the pigs over the demonia. They chose comfort and security over the transformation of one of the most troubled people in their society. And their fear and pleading Jesus to leave tells us that they were actually not prepared to enter into a disturbed and affected life because it might mean losing what they were familiar with. Leonard Ravenhill, the great northern English revivalist of the, I don't know, 60s to 80s, said the reason we don't see revival is because we are quite happy to live without it. It's a, it's, it's a chilling word, isn't it? It's a chilling word that actually maybe we have our own pigs. This isn't a message of condemnation. This is the kindest thing God can do to us is say to us, well, what are your pigs? What are the things that are actually in, uh, 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 higher up in your priorities than actually the supernatural deliverance of those that here's the thing, the world has no solution for. The world didn't have a solution for the, uh, the, the events in this story then, and the world still doesn't have a solution to the events in the world today. There are no socio-economic or political solutions to the problems that the world generates and faces. Amen? But what we do have is that the same Spirit who rise, raised Christ from the dead and the same Spirit that Christ himself manifested in healing that man lives in us, church. And this is the very thing that enables us and that calls us out the other side of the lake, out away from comfort and the familiar to somewhere unknown that actually, quite honestly, we feel pretty out of place and we don't know what to do, but we need to rely on the empowering grace of the supernatural spirit of Jesus. And this is the life that Sarah and I, this is why what we've chosen to do and the rest of our community, Claire and all the rest of our um, church, is not a radical response to the gospel. It's absolutely logical. If we carry on in the story of, um, in the chapter of Mark, what we see is that Jesus gets to the other side of the lake. He goes back home. And you can imagine the disciples thinking, right, I'm done. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know who's going to come meet us this side. And a guy called Jairus comes to them. Now, Jairus was well known. He was influential. He was popular. He was a powerful man. The complete opposite, actually, of the demoniac the other side of the lake. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, my daughter's dying. She's sick. Won't you come help? And Jesus is like, I mean, sure, I guess. Bear in mind, he was really good at Sabbath. So, you know, he was just on a little roll of intense ministry at that point. And um, he said, sure, I guess. He goes along. And then as they're in a crowd of people, what happens? A woman who is not named. Jairus is given a name. This woman is not named. We know her as the bleeding woman. And she comes up to Jesus and tugs on his garment and power leaves him. That same power that delivered the demoniac from a legion of demons leaves Jesus' body and he heals her accidentally of chronic illness. And what happens? He doesn't just give her a little wink and keep going because he's off to the powerful man's house. No, he actually says, who touches me? Knowing full well who touched him. Was he trying to um, humiliate this woman who, again, had been ceremonially unclean from the Jewish way of things for decades? Absolutely not. He wanted to shine a spotlight on her healing so that she would be reintegrated back into society 
as a healthy, clean member of society. So the reintegrating of those whom society has thrown out is also on Jesus' heart. And this is part of the process that we do in Manenberg. Sarah and I, our house, we call Crew 62. And the guys who come and live with us for 18 months, we then look at reintegrating back into society as clean from drugs and faces shining like angels, I promise you. People, they go back for home visits and their family literally just sit there weeping for two hours going, who are you? You look a bit like my son, but this is incredible. And the reason that there are no economic or political solutions to the problems the world itself generates and faces is because the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. And Jesus specializes in changing our hearts. Amen? And so we go back to the story of uh, Jairus and the bleeding woman. And what happens? You can imagine Jairus pacing up and down, saying, this is all well and good. I get it. Can't we come back to her a bit later? My daughter's actually dying. And Jesus, the kindest thing he can do to Jairus in that moment is say, wait. And he sits there. And this influential man, who is probably top of the pile, has to sit and pace and worry as this woman, whose society had thrown out, verse 33, told him her whole truth. The kindness of God for those of us who might be in power or influence is often shut up and wait. You are used to receiving everything on a plate, but the kindest thing I can do for you now, Jairus, is for you to hear this woman's story. And if that is 12 years of chronic illness and marginalization, then we've got to imagine that that's a whole lot of truth. And we've got to imagine that Jesus is just sitting there kneeling at this woman's feet, weeping as she tells him and the village all about her pain and rejection. And you can imagine Jesus just weeping so fully in this. But at the same time, Jairus is getting more and more impatient. And he's never had to wait before. He doesn't know what it's like. This fragility of those who are used to power having to wait, and especially with this woman who no one's ever seen before, really, because she's never been in town. But then Jairus' servant comes up to Jairus and says, My lord, sir, Jairus, um, it's too late. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's dead. Can you imagine the wail of the heart of a father over the death of his daughter and the bitterness leveled at Jesus in that moment? We could have saved her. You could have come. You could have healed her. But here's the thing. It's no more supernatural for Jesus to raise the dead than it is for him to heal the sick. And it's no more supernatural for us to do that. Here's the other thing. It's no more supernatural to heal the sick than it is to love your neighbor as yourself or to integrate the marginalized back into society. It all takes the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit. The story ends on a bit of a low. Jesus just goes, Talitha come, rise up little kid. She does. Give her something to eat. Great. All a bit understated. That's a resurrection of the dead right there. Tick. Brilliant. So my question to us is this. How will the story, how if we want to live the lifestyle of Jesus in the public space, how is our lifestyle mirroring the devotion of Jesus in the private? If we want to see the transformation of those that the world has no solution for, if we want to say the church is a company of people who have counted the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price, 
then it might shift our priorities a little. It might be that the Holy Spirit's whispering to you. And if you feel guilty or weighed down or condemned right now, that's not the Holy Spirit. It's the kindness of God to convict us into new things, into unfamiliarity that make us rely on the empowering grace of his Spirit. It's the absolute kindness of God to call us the other side of the lake. It's the kindness of God to say to us, wait, there's some unheard voices that need to be listened to. Let's go back to the pigs. What might our pigs be this morning? Well, let's go back to the demoniac. Who might your demoniac be? Are you a disciple? Kind of like, yeah, I'm in on this Jesus, I'm up for it, but like... I'm feeling a little bit worried about this whole messy approach to church. Or are you a villager who's like, quite honestly, I can see how I've been choosing the pigs. And my prayer is that if that is you, that the Holy Spirit would in joy and in love bring freedom from the staid familiarity of comfort. Because we will see transformation. I believe that you guys are so brilliantly placed for the transformation of your context for Lisbon. And I believe that our message is one of encouragement to say there's more. There's even more. The things that the world say are impossible. It can't be done. No, shrug shoulders of indifference. There's no cynicism in the face or voice of Jesus. He's leading us forward. The best the world has to offer will not cut it. But the best the church has to offer is Jesus. And he has a solution for each one of our problems. Amen? So can we stand? I just want to pray for us. Feel free to close your eyes, hold out your hands. Feel free to stand on your head however you receive the Spirit easiest. (laughs) There's a throwaway verse in chapter 4 of Mark that just says about the boat that they are on the lake and it said, and there were other boats with them. My prayer for us today, Lord Jesus, is that like those of us in Jesus' boat, calming the storm and the reality of the supernatural authority that he wielded for our sake, that the other boats on our lake in Lisbon, in Northern Ireland, in Ireland, would also be affected by the transformation and spiritual authority that you're imparting on us right now. We declare that bended knee is the hinge of history. We declare, Lord God, that as we pray to you, we become like you. And as we become like you, Lord Jesus, we begin to get some of your heart for those that the world has told us not to bother with. Oh, Lord, won't you raise our faith right now. Come and break off, Lord Jesus, whatever those pigs are in our life. Come and free us from the staid familiarity of life as it's always been. Lord Jesus, raise up the revivalists of love in this room for your glory. Won't you come, Holy Spirit? Won't you reveal to us who are those enslaved and enchained and incarcerated and on the edge of society who you put in our life that we can actually minister to to and love? Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And if anybody's feeling weighed down, 
Lord Jesus, then we declare your yoke is easy, your burden is light. We declare you are unabashed, Holy Spirit, and your enthusiasm for each one of us. And so we affirm that you are moving right now. We affirm that you are moving right now. And my prayer for anyone who is standing here and thinking, yeah, I gave that a go. I gave that a go and I got really burnt. My prayer for you is, Lord, work in them. Redeem that situation. Lord Jesus, Romans 5 said, we rejoice in our sufferings that produce perseverance, character, and character hope. Rise up wells of hope in that person's life, in those people's lives. Lord Jesus, that we would know that even if there's a storm on the way to the place that you are calling us to and to our destiny, that we are not to set back, that we are not to be perturbed. Because the kindness of God is just the other side of fear. So I pray this all in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen.